Uh, we, uh, we all have people in our family who we might describe as out of touch with reality. Um, as I was preparing for this week's sermon in our series, Awkward Family Christmas, a look at the notable characters of Jesus' lineage, I was thinking about my own family Christmases. And I began to ask, what was the most awkward moment in my family Christmases? You knew my family. There's a lot of awkward stuff. So finding the most awkward was, was a little hard, but I remember being about Shiloh's age. And uh, we uh, went to the second family Christmas because of my uh, dad's childhood. He wasn't real close with his mom. So therefore, we weren't that close with his mom. And uh, so that Christmas on that side of the family was always the second of the day. And it was always more awkward for us. At, at Mama's parents' house, we had Mama and Papa. You know, and some of my best memories still to this day, I think back and I can think of those memories. And so it was always just comfortable. You know, we, we, we went there before school in the morning and we came there and stayed all afternoon long. That, that was Mama and Papa's house. The difference for Dad's mom was she was, she was grandma. Um, and it was different for our cousins on that side because they all called her Mimo. But to us, she was, she was just grandma. And there was a different relationship there. And so there was already that awkwardness. I've told you the story before about my most precious gift, the Lifesaver booklets. But this time for me, it was the opposite. I wouldn't, maybe not exactly the whole opposite, but it wasn't the most precious gift. I was nine or ten years old. I was about Shallow's age. And we got to grandma's house. And there are gifts for every grandchild, which is great. My cousins are opening their gifts. And there's action figures, and there's cars, and there's like shoot-em-up things, and just really cool stuff. And I'm getting so excited. I can't wait to open mine because my box was a little bit bigger, honestly. And man, I can't imagine what I got. And then I opened it. And suddenly I, I thought maybe I was on candid camera or punked for you younger people. Because I'm watching all of my, my cousins play with their toys. And inside the box was a baby blue knitted sweater vest. I've never worn a sweater vest in my life. Second thing, it was three sizes too small. And this is before I became an adult. I mean, it was, it was a little bitty. You know, as an adult, I can look back and I can appreciate the fact that she had, she had woven this thing. She had put it together. But as a kid, I was sitting there going, this woman has lost her mind. She doesn't know who I am. She's supposed to be my grandma and she missed it. He got a truck and he got a gun and she got a hula hoop. And he gave me a sweater to the woman who did it. And I was like, can we check the name again? Are you sure this isn't somebody else's? And I wanted to cry or scream or something. And then I caught my mom glaring at me. So I said thank you as nicely as I could. As a nine-year-old whose dreams had just been crushed. That was an awkward family Christmas. Our biblical character today 
probably seen just out of touch with reality of those around him as my grandma did to me that Christmas so long ago. This morning we're going all the way back to the beginning of the tribe Jesus came from, back where it all started, back to Grandpa, Judah. Last week we talked a moment about his sins and his wins, and today we're in a story that's couched between those two moments. It's a, it's a major part of his life that we read about a little bit there in the genealogy of Jesus. It's right in the middle of the Joseph story there in Genesis 38. So Joseph has been sold off into slavery at the prodding of Judah. We shouldn't get just selling. Let's make some money. Let's, let's do this. And so he's been sold off. And so before they actually go back and everything has its happy ending with the bow on top of it, we have this text in the middle of that story, that discourse there in Genesis 38. And it says, At that time Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adulamite named Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as a wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son and named him Arab. She conceived again and gave birth to a son named Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shalah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as your brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his seed on the ground, so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shalah grows up. For he thought, he might die too like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hurrah the Hillamite went up to Timnah to the sheep shearers. And Tamar was told her father-in-law was going up to Timnah to shear sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Anim which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that though Shalah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he went over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me for sleeping with me? And he said, I will send a young goat from my flock, he replied. But she said, Only if you leave something with me until you send it. Well, what should I give you, he asked. She answered, Your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her, slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. She got up then and removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find them. He asked him out of the place where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road at the name. There has been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So Adulamite returned to Judah saying, I couldn't find her. And furthermore, the man of the place said there has been no cult prostitute here. Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise we'll become a laughing stock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute, and now she is pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law a message. I am pregnant by the man who's, who these items belong to. And she added, Examine them. Whose signet ring cord and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, She is more in the right than I, since I did not give her my son Shalah. And he did not know her intimately again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in the womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing, This one came out first. But then he pulled his hand back, and his brother came out. 
Then she said, You have broken out first. So he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread, tied him his hand, came out, and was named Zerah. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you right now. And we thank you, we praise you for your blessings. Father, we ask right now that you would take this time and use it for your glory. Father, use me in the vessel and the words that I speak for yours and yours alone. Father, we thank you, we praise you. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his son, and all God's people said. If there was a subtitle for this sermon, it would be the dangers of being righteous in your own eyes. As we read this story, it's a, it's a crazy story, and our American sensibilities are sometimes offended by their own things. Um, there's a lot of cultural stuff here that for us just doesn't make any sense, but, but, but perfectly aligned with what happened in that time and in that place. But Judah here is a man who is righteous in his own eyes. Uh, he thinks he is, you know, that song, Oh Lord, It's Hard to Be Humble. He could have written that song. I mean, that's who Judah was. He was it. He was the bee's knees. He knew he was the great one, and he, that's what he was going to do. And so that's who he was. And as we read this, and we see this account, we see who Judah was, one of the things we see is that people who are righteous in their own eyes view the world through a filter of their own making. Judah is looking at the world. He's seeing all of these things. But the way he sees them is filtered through what he thinks of who he is and who everybody else is. Sometimes they don't think logically. They don't see things logically or practically or biblically. They have a way of, of seeing everything, and it's their way. And everything is filtered through it. It's just there. They decide what is right and what rules should be followed and how they should be followed. <laughs> Often the rules will change, or they don't apply to them at all. That rule doesn't apply to me. It applies for you. You have to follow it, but I don't have to follow it. I, I move beyond that. I, we find the rules changing. And Judah, in this narrative, has already left his brothers. That's a break with tradition. And here it is, you know, he'd already caused turmoil in the family. He had taken his father's favorite and sold him as a slavery. Can you imagine living with daddy after you had done that? Because when they came back, they brought the cloak. They brought the cloak and they said, here's this, daddy. I think an animal killed him. You have to watch your dad grieve. And this is a grief that daddy never got over. We find out later. And Judah was having to live with that day in and day out because it was his fault. Because you can't come clean now, right? I mean, what are you going to do? Well, daddy, we sold him. I mean, that's not going to go over very well. So he has to live with it. And so he's broken with tradition after causing this turmoil of the family. And then he's got married apart from the family. And he's living his life apart from the family. How often do we act... Or do we have no people who act similar? We cause an issue or problems in relationships or a situation, and rather than saying, I goofed up, we just leave. We decide that the problem is there, and I can fix it by not being a part of it. It's usually not how problems work. But when we may be righteous in our own eyes, we see problems that way. The problem can't be me, right? It can't be me. It can't be something that I'm doing. When we do that, we're being righteous in our own eyes because people who are righteous in their own eyes view the world in their own unique way. That way puts them here and everybody else there. Here I am. Here's everybody else. But you know, people who are righteous in their own eyes tend to blame others for the things they aren't responsible for. So often, the truth of Scripture is what is written between the lines. 
what's in the story. Uh, and as we read this story, Scripture tells us directly that Ur was evil in the Lord's sight, so he killed him. We're told that Onan's actions are selfish, were also evil, so God killed him. Clearly, according to this passage, God was responsible for their deaths, and when you press Scripture further, it says that Judah's own actions and heart caused their deaths. But, but you know, that, that's what's going on. That's not the conclusion that Judah comes to. He doesn't come to this point where their actions caused their death. He doesn't come to the part where, where they were evil. They're my kids. They can't be wrong. There are a lot of parents like that today. They're my kids. They don't do anything wrong. My kids are always doing wrong stuff. I mean, when teachers call me, I'm like, what do they do now? And I'm just like, that's, that's the way. But that's not what Judah. He's righteous in his own eyes. And so his sons, the Bible tells us, were evil. And God saw their actions as evil. And so, man, it can't be their problem. But the one thing they both had in common was what? Tamar. So he seems to come to the conclusion that these deaths are somehow Tamar's fault. It's Tamar's fault. It's not hers. It's not Onan's. It's Tamar's fault. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to say that. I'm going to say this is your fault. He doesn't say it out loud, does he? What does he say? He says, well, if I give her my other son, he might die too. It's her fault. She did it. It's hers. People who are righteous in their own eyes are the same way today. There must always be someone else to blame for my woe. Somebody else calls me to do this. My biggest argument with my children right now is learning to accept responsibility. I mean, who made this mess in the bathroom? It wasn't me. It must have been Shalosh. Outside. Or it must have been Micah. Well, Micah was off at you know, school. Well, it, it was Asher's fault. And we're always writing those names around, and we're always saying these things, and we're always pointing the finger somewhere else. Because that's who we are when we get in that defensive mode, because it can't be me. He made me do it. She made me do it. And sometimes it's even, well, Daddy, you told me that I had to, and I made them do it. People who are righteous in their own eyes tend to put blame on people. It's not their fault. They didn't do these things. There's always somebody else to blame. It's not me and mine. It's somebody else. We can't be the cause of the things that are happening. And often the person or people they blame are innocent bystanders. They just happen to be there. You know, Asher gets blamed for a lot these days. And it's not just about the kids. It's me and Carrie, you know. We'll hear something crash and we'll go, Asher Benjamin! You know, well, maybe, maybe Carrie knocked something off, and I'm screaming at Asher because Carrie knocked something off. Because it can't be Carrie's fault. Because she's mama, so it's got to be Asher back there doing something wrong. But we do that. We, we find this way, and that's how we do it. We always find it, and there's always an innocent bystander. They're collateral damage that just happens to be there. Tamar didn't choose her situation. She didn't choose her situation. It says what? Judah found a wife for his son. It didn't say they fell in love. It didn't say they had a great honeymoon. It didn't say any of those things. She was not, she didn't have the choice. She was basically sold off by her daddy to be somebody's husband. I mean, to be somebody's wife. 
She didn't make that choice. Yet, she was still blamed for the outcome by her father. It's your fault. You did this. Now you may be saying, Brother Troy doesn't actually say he blamed her, so it might be a stretch, but you're right, it doesn't say it. But I don't think it's a stretch. This is why he punished her. In fact, people who are righteous in their own eyes often punish people for the sins they deem them guilty. Tamar is a young woman who is given by her daddy to somebody else to marry. Two husbands in a row die. Yet her father-in-law says, remain a widow. Live with your father. Wait on my other son to grow up because he thought he might die too. I think we lose something here in our culture of what it meant to be a widow back then. Because, especially at a young age, she was supposed to stay in her father's home. She had to wear widow's clothes for years because she's waiting for the son to grow up. She's not allowed to quit her mourning period and not be a widow anymore. She has to wear these widow's, these widow's clothes. She has to do all these things that she's supposed to do. She has to follow all of these rules and the age excuse is just an excuse. It wasn't unheard of for a very young boy to take a while in situations like this because marriage was a contract. It wasn't like we think today. But what was unheard of was just sending her away. <laughs> that didn't make a whole lot of sense. We have another example of that over in, in, in the book of Ruth where she tries to send her daughter-in-laws away because she has no more children. And she says, go away and find a husband. Marry again. But Judah's saying, don't marry again. You live in your daddy's house and you don't even look at another man. You stay there and you don't do anything else. By making her live as a widow and simply wait on a promise that it doesn't seem like he intends to keep at all, he risks her future with no husband or potential son to care for. She's by herself. And evidently, he's oblivious to the sinfulness of his sons because rather than risk letting her kill another one, he's going to send her to a life of widowness in her father's house because she's guilty in his eyes and she's being punished for it. And the same thing happens today. People who are righteous in their own eyes go out punishment for the sins they think people commit. It's judgment. There's a lack of empathy. There's a shunning from family or community. There's even general mistreatment. We tend to, when we have this idea of righteousness, of who I am, that and I, I, I've, I've made it, when we get there, man, that's when everything begins to fall apart. I mean... This account continues. What's to say that for many days, many days pass, and Judah doesn't fulfill his promise. His wife dies, carries on with life. Meanwhile, Tamar is still out of the cold, living in her daddy's house as a widow. So she disguises herself as the temple prostitute and waits. Judah shows up, doesn't recognize her. Asks her to sleep with him, makes a deal with her, leaves his ring and staff in court with her, and when he sends the guy to deliver the goat, she can't be found. He just writes it off. Then he finds out Tamar's pregnant and he orders her killed. <laughs> it's just this is quite a, a crazy story. Hmm. You know, people who are righteous in their own eyes quickly point out the sins of others while ignoring their own sinfulness. 
It's probably the most scandalous story in Jesus' lineage right here at the end. And everybody usually gets worked up about the wrong part. Everybody is usually upset because she's his daughter. That's not the scandal. That's not the big deal. For Americans, it's the big deal. That's not the big deal. The big deal is that Judah's self-righteousness and sinfulness are what's going on here. Let's walk through his sins, okay? Just the ones in this narrative. <laughs> he left his brothers and purposely broke the lineage by marrying a Canaanite. And while technically not the law yet, both Abraham and Isaac made sure their sons did not marry Canaanites. He blamed Tamar for her son's deaths and sent her to be a widow. He broke his promise to Tamar by not sending for her when his third son became an adult. He then, and here's the, here's the scandalous part, he then slept with Tamar when he thought she was a cult prostitute. He worshipped God. Yahweh. Elohim. Any other name you, that's who he worshipped. The act that he thought he was committing was both sin from a sexual side and as an act of idolatry. This was a cult prostitute. That action was worship of another god. The scandal here is that he saw a prostitute and said, huh, this is a good idea. That's the scandal. That's the sinfulness. That's really what should stand out. And then he tries to cover up his sin so that people wouldn't laugh at it. Well, take the goat. And he goes back and says, I couldn't find her. I looked all over and I even asked for her. And they said, we haven't had a cult prostitute here in years. And he went, oh, shh, don't tell anybody because they're going to laugh at me. Laugh at you? That's what you're scared of? Being laughed at? I mean, but that's where he is. And then he judges Tamar for her one sin of promiscuity based on the rumors brought to him by others. Yes, Tamar had sinned, but her overall sinfulness was slight compared to Judah. People who are righteous in their own eyes are very quick to point out the sins of others while ignoring the many sinful things that they did. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is in Luke 18, where Jesus is talking to the disciples, and uh, they're talking about righteousness. And he talks about the Pharisee who stops and he prays, right? Thank you, Lord, that I am blessed to be an Israelite, that I tithe 10%, that I come to temple four times a week whenever the doors are open, and I give all the greatest sacrifices. I give all the greatest sacrifices. I do all the things that I should do, and I am so blessed, God, and I'm not like that sinner over there. And the sinner stops and he looks up to heaven with tears in his eyes and he says, have mercy on me, O Lord, a sinner. And Jesus says, which one was deemed righteous? It was the sinner. It was the one who knew where he was. And the funniest, most telling thing to me about that parable is whenever we read it or we talk about it, Almost all of us think, man, I sure am glad I'm not like that Pharisee. I mean, when I was talking about that, y'all are all thinking, I'm glad I'm not that way. 
<laughs> That's what we just all became, right? Because we have a tendency to look at others' sinfulness as this horrible thing in our own, we make a, a little allowance. We say, okay, it, it's not bad. The truth is, it's far too easy to become righteous in our own eyes. It's far too easy to begin to think we have it together when others don't. We, uh, when we begin to see ourselves as righteous, we begin to move away from the truth of who we are in Jesus. We watched season two of The Chosen again over Thanksgiving break. And one of my favorite scenes, I'm not going to get too much away here, I promise. If you've read the Bible, I'm not giving anything away. Um, it's there in the last couple of episodes. And Jesus is putting together the Sermon on the Mount. And he's dictating it. And he, he's trying to get it all together. He's trying to get it right. And, you know, that's not in Scripture. But I can see Jesus wanting to make sure this is right. His humanity coming through. And he gets to this one part in, in Matthew's, you know, Matthew. And he's taking notes for him. And he goes, well, it's kind of harsh, isn't it, Jesus? I mean, it's kind of in your face. And Jesus is like, yeah. We need an introduction. And he comes up with his introduction, which is the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are. And he reads them all off. And Matthew said, well, what does it mean? And Jesus' reply there in the Chosen was, it's a map of where to find me. If you look at these people, you'll find me. Now, all that, all that statement's not in the Bible. Man, it's true. When we forget those categories of people, that's who we actually are. We're no longer where Jesus is. If we get to the point where we're praying like the Pharisee, or thinking like the Pharisee and not like the sinner in the corner begging for mercy, we're no longer where Jesus is. We look at this story, we look at this account here, and you may be thinking, what does it have to do with Christmas? Just a Christmas sermon. Let's come back to that. <coughs> Jesus' tribe line begins with a man who is self-righteous. And Jesus came in the most humble way possible that we could be made righteous. Not in our own eyes, but truly righteous through the Spirit's presence in our life. The incarnation, the birth of the Messiah, is about a path out of self-righteousness, out of judgment, out of superiority, and into humility and acceptance and love. 2,000 years ago, God stepped into the world and with humility brought, brought us an opportunity to end the self-righteousness that has plagued humanity since the fall. And to have that opportunity, all you have to do is make a decision to follow Jesus. Judah's story is... It's just crazy. Uh... Betty was laughing at me this morning because I made her reload the entire PowerPoint because I changed one word. Because <laughs> I kept reading it all week long and I kept thinking, I don't want to make parents have to discuss things they don't want to discuss. So I'm going to change why I changed one word. 
but it was in the Bible. It's still there. And, and I didn't change the meaning. I used a synonym for all you English teachers out there. It's still safe, I promise. Because the truth is, it's too easy to be like Jesus. It's too easy to find ourselves righteous. It's too easy to look down our nose at somebody else. I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't drink or chew or go with girls that did it. I'm good. I'm a good boy. One of our challenges in this world is allowing God to make us righteous and living righteously but doing so in a way that we're still approachable to those who don't know Jesus. Maybe this morning Maybe you are struggling with self-righteousness. Maybe it's hard for you in this society. It's hard for me in this society. Uh, our media is tries to inundate us with images that I don't want to see, that I don't want my kids to see. And it's hard for me not to judge that from where I'm at. Maybe this morning you're struggling with how do I walk that line? How, how, do, I, how do I stay pure and righteous and holy in this world without becoming judgmental of other people? Without beginning to think that, that they're lower than me in some way? Now's the time to just come to Jesus and say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Maybe this morning you feel bad for all those people who were looking at other people. Come down and say, have mercy on me, O Lord, a sinner. Maybe this morning it's not that you want to pray that the altar is open. I'll pray with you. Maybe you want to serve missions or ministry. Maybe you want to join this church in membership. Maybe you've never known Jesus. <coughs> Maybe you've never known the one who stepped out of that. The one whose line started way back then. The one who came to correct all of this fallenness and all of this junk. Now's the time. You just walk down. I said, Brother Troy, I want to know Jesus. And we'll go from there. But wherever you're at, whatever you need, give it to him. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you right now. We thank you. We praise you for your blessings.